chapter 6 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Almost done with the book of uh, Timothy. I was going to try to do all of chapter 6 here in one setting, but there was so much stuff. We're going to break it up into two weeks. So we're going to do the first part this week, and then we will uh, take a break. Excuse me, do the second part then uh, next week. So 1 Timothy chapter 6. Hey, let's do the smart thing and have a quick word of prayer before we start out then. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're just thankful to be here today, just thankful for the time to just uh, come and learn about you. We just pray, Lord, that you would just uh, make this message alive and active through your spirit, through your word, and just be with us in all ways and all things. And uh, Lord, for all of our loved ones out there traveling or working, just pray, keep them safe, bring them home safe, and Lord, just help us in all ways to truly focus on you in your name. Amen. First Timothy chapter 6. Now, this is the message I was calling this is... Uh, it, we're talking about this at the 8.30 service. This is a very practical message. Not a lot of deep theology, not a lot of deep thoughts on God and his infinite grace, love, and wisdom. All that stuff is vitally important. But this is a very practical message. If you've ever studied out any of Paul's writings before, he usually spends the first chapter as an introduction. He spends the middle chapters on theology. And then the last chapter is kind of let's put it all together and put it into practice. So what you have today is some practical things on just being a Christian. And what does it mean to get out there and live the life for the Lord in whatever capacity or whatever state you called to be in? So with that being said, let's talk about this. Because the purpose of why we're here, and if you remember, it's been a couple weeks since we've hit this verse. The main purpose of 1 Timothy is found in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. It says, These things I write to you that I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. 1 Timothy is written for us to know how we're supposed to act as Christians within the church. And we've talked about this over the last couple months we've been in 1 Timothy. But the purpose of the church is to give you an opportunity of service, an opportunity of worship, an opportunity of prayer and evangelism and fellowship and the teaching. And the reason you're here this morning is to be taught God's word so that way as you leave this building and you go out into the world to be a light and a witness. That's why we're here. Too often churches just get together to pat themselves on the back and have fellowship. There's nothing wrong with fellowship. That's a key component of our walk. But the real reason we are here is to be instructed in God's word and as we're instructed in God's word to go out and make a difference where we live and where we work. With that being said, chapter 6 tells us how to do that. Look here in verse 1. It says, Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Now, the idea of slavery, that's a tough concept. A lot of people believe that the writing of these books in the New Testament, there was probably upwards of over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Now, when you think of slavery, obviously we think of that in a negative connotation. You really can't think of that in a good connotation in any way whatsoever. But the mindset you have of slavery is different than the New Testament concept of slavery. By the time these books were written, slaves or bond servants had, had more legal rights. They usually served with their masters. They were taught a trade and actually worked up to the point of working side by side with their masters as an equal in that field. And many times the masters and the slaves became friends. If you look at the book of Philemon, it gives us a little bit of a hint into that. So is slavery good? Of course not. But the concept that we think of slavery is different than the New Testament concept here. So the New Testament concept is saying, hey, bond servants, if you're in this area of life, we want you to work as if working for the Lord. That's a tough concept. When you really stop and think about it, that's a tough concept to really stop and say whatever state you're in is to work as if working for the Lord. Great verse. 
It says right here in Ephesians 6, 5, it says, Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye servants as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. God says, whatever state you're in, wherever you're working, wherever you're serving, you're serving the Lord, not man. Now think about that. When you go into work today or tomorrow, and you have a boss, and that boss is difficult, those coworkers are difficult, you're not there for that company. You're not there for that boss. You're there for the Lord. That's your work ethic. That's your mindset. I believe here there's two A words I was thinking of. I believe as Christians, we should have the best attitude and we should have the best actions when it comes to our workforce. We should be able to go up to the boss and the boss should say, who's your best employees? And it should be, boom, these people. And then hopefully are believers that have a good attitude and have good actions. Here's the problem. A lot of us go into work and we become like everybody else. Everybody else is whining and moping and complaining about the boss and job, so we jump right into it. Everybody else is being lazy at work, so we jump right into that too. And you can't see the Christians from the non-Christians at work. God says that's not the way it's supposed to be. He goes, you're held to a different standard. Yes, that company is paying you. Yes, you work under that boss. He goes, but you're really working for me. Your attitude and your actions at work are a representative of your walk and relationship with Christ. We have to remember that. Turn, if you to the book of Colossians. Colossians, please. Colossians chapter 3. We need to make sure that whatever we're doing, we're doing it for the Lord, remembering that we're working and serving Him. Not our boss, not the company, not whatever. It's our light and witness. It's our actions and attitudes. Colossians chapter 3. Let's go ahead and uh, pick it up here in verse 22. In Colossians 3, it says, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Stop there for a second. Sincerity of heart. You sincerely want to do a good job at work. Not because your boss is the greatest boss in the world and he deserves it. Not because they're paying you so much money in the world you feel guilty for not working. And not because you love the company so much that you want to do what's best. You do it out of sincerity of heart because you are a Christian. Some of you may have horrible jobs. Some of you may have horrible bosses. And some of you may be working for things that you are much more valuable than what you're getting paid. You're still working for the Lord and not man. That is your attitude and that is your actions. Verse 23, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. You're not doing these things for man. You're doing it for the Lord. Verse 24, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. That means, I firmly believe, just as Rich was saying there when the teens were up there, what a neat testimony that the museum says, Hey, all the kids were good. That's what it's supposed to be. We serve the Lord, not man. Isn't it great when the boss realizes that it's the believers at work that have the best attitude, the believers at work that have the best actions. We don't resort to what the world does. When everybody else wants to whine and complain, we don't. We serve. And it's not even in work. How about in marriage? How about in life? Just in relationships. So often we go down to the level that we're around. You know, my spouse wants to pick a fight. Well, I'll just pick a fight right back. No, you serve the Lord, not man. Last week we talked about honoring all. Serving all, encouraging all, loving all. And we said all means all, everybody. Well, we're supposed to work as if working for the Lord in all situations. You may have a tough job. You still serve the Lord. You may have a tough marriage. You still love your spouse because you serve the Lord. You may have tough kids, tough family, tough friends, fill in the blank. You still love and show that respect because you're doing it for the Lord, not man. Here's the problem. We have this mindset we have this mindset, well, the way they treat me, that's the way I'm going to treat them. That's the world's wisdom. We're held to a different standard. And some of you may be thinking, well, this isn't fair. 
I'm trying to go out there and serve the Lord and be the best spouse, the best worker, the best student, the best whatever. This is not fair. You know what? God says, first off, in verse 24, you're going to be rewarded because you're serving the Lord. He sees that. He says you will be rewarded. And it may not be on this earth, but you will be rewarded for all of eternity for being there and being the worker and the spouse and the student and the friend and whatever it is that God has called you to do. But what happens to those people that are wrong? Look at verse 25. He who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there's no partiality. God says, I see that. He goes, I see that boss that mistreats you. I see that spouse that mistreats you. I see that teacher that mistreats you. He goes, I see it all. But he goes, I see your actions. I see your attitude in the midst of it. And he goes, and you will be rewarded for that. We have to remember as Christians, we're not just Christians on Sunday mornings at church. So often when we go clock into work, we leave our Christianity at the door. And I've heard people make comments like, well, that's the way you got to be if you want to survive. I disagree with that. You need to be a Christian if you want to survive. A Christ-like attitude and our actions and also in our attitude and all that we do and say. What happens if you got the bad boss, though? What if you just got the miserable boss and, or the miserable spouse, the miserable whatever? Turn, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, please. Let's talk about this for a second. 1 Peter chapter 2. Because some of you have a tough job. Some of you have a tough marriage. Some of you have tough co-workers to be around. It's difficult. 1 Peter chapter 2. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle but also to the harsh. Yeah. Don't you wish those last few words weren't in that verse? Have you ever had a harsh boss? I've had two instances in my life where I had someone that I was under that was harsh. I had one harsh boss and I had one harsh professor in college. My, my harsh boss that I had, it's kind of embarrassing to say this, I actually got fired from that job. I know, she fired a pastor. She's going straight to hell for that one. Um, she was a nasty God loved her, and I think God loved her. I don't know. She pushed the limits of God's love. She was a nasty person. It was difficult to work around her. Um, always had an attitude, always frustrated, always used foul language. And looking back now, it kind of prepared me for being a pastor, because that's kind of what it's like. Point, she was difficult. There's no way around that. She was harsh. Very, very difficult. And I, I had a professor in college that just liked to push buttons. He, he knew I was a Christian. And he just had this attitude about it. I've shared stories about him before. At one time he put a, put a thing up there. It said the only mistake that God ever made was when she created man first. And he liked just to push buttons and stuff. And I remember he called you into his office at the end of the semester to go through the class and the grades. And I've shared this story with you before. But called me in and he said, oh, you know, here's the grade you got. And I think it was like a 91 or a 92. It was a B and the A was like a 93. And he goes, you know, you got a B, he goes, but because of your attendance and because of your participation in class, he goes, I'm, I'm going to kick it up and give you an A. And I said, oh, I got an A. And he says, no, you didn't get an A. He goes, I gave you an A. And that was his attitude. But it was a neat picture of grace. <laughs> I didn't earn the A, but he gave it. Anyway, difficult, harsh. You've had harsh employees. You've had harsh people you had to work with. God says... You're supposed to still be good and gentle with them and submissive. That's crazy. He even goes one step further. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. What credit is it if when you are beaten for your fault, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. See, the Bible says Christ set the example. See, here's the problem. We sit here and we say, wait a second. I got this boss, I got this co-worker that walks all over me, so I'm just supposed to sit there and take it? Yeah. No. 
Why not? That's what Christ did. Well, I'm not that type of guy. I'm not the one to get walked on. See, here's the problem. You equate that with weakness. You need to go back and reread the Gospels. Christ was not weak in any way whatsoever. So when Christ got, quote-unquote, walked on, he was not being weak. The Bible says he could have called a legion of angels down to save him at any time. He could have toasted those people any time he wanted. He chose to rather take it for the light and witness of being the Messiah. So when you're at work and you're getting chewed out at and every part of your flesh wants to chew back, you're under a different standard. Your attitude and actions are different. But what about at home? What about when your spouse comes home and she's just in a bad mood? She's yelling at the kid, she's yelling at you, and you just want to yell back. You're under a different standard, different attitude, different actions. What about those things? We are held to a different standard. Too often in work and in home and in life, we go down to the level of the world. You want to yell, I'll yell. You want to use that language, I'll use that language. You want to have an attitude, I'll have an attitude. No, that's not what Christianity is. It's not being weak. It's not being wimpy, it's actually being strong. We sit there and we say, no, I'm not going to allow myself to go down to that level, even though they're being harsh towards me. That's part of our light, that's part of our witness. Is it difficult to do? You bet it is. Because we look like we're taking it. No, we're being a light and a witness. Does this mean you always take it and never put your foot down? There comes a time and a place where you have to put your foot down. We're going to get to that part here in a little bit in the message. But generally speaking, as Christians, it's our attitude and our actions where we say, no, I'm held to a different standard. I'm not going to act that way. I'm not going to let my witness be hurt by resorting to the flesh. We're called to a different standard on how we act and how we do that. Now, just ask yourself that. When it comes to your witness at work, do you have that different standard? Are your attitudes and actions different than the other people you work with so people see you being different? When it comes to home, is your attitude and actions different so that your spouse and your kids see how you act and respond differently? Or maybe your friends and coworkers, whatever it is, do they see a different attitude and action in you? And it's not even for those that you're working under because the Bible also speaks to those that are in charge. Some of you may be a boss. Some of you may own your own company. Well, the Bible says in Colossians 4.1, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What he's basically saying is, hey, yeah, you may be in charge, but there's someone in charge over you. And so therefore, you may be in a position of authority. Use that authority as a light and a witness for the Lord, not just to rub it in people's faces. We have a responsibility in how we act. Now, jump back, please, to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. So our attitude and actions are supposed to be different at work. We're held to a different standard. Well, let's talk about what happens when it doesn't work out that way. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. Stop right there for a second. Your translations may have it a little differently. But look at verse 3. Two words I want to bring out to you. Wholesome and godliness. You should catch that in verse 3. Wholesome words and godliness. Two questions to ask yourself when it comes to your light and the witness at home, at work, whatever. Are your words wholesome? Just think about that. Are your words wholesome? I've run into Christians that it's amazing the words that come out of their mouth. They cuss like the world, they talk like the world, they yell like the world, and they scream like the world. Those are not wholesome words. They're not that way. We're called to a different standard in our words. Next one, accords with godliness. Take a look at your actions. Are your actions godly? Do you have godly actions at work? Do you have godly actions at home? Because if you're not living the life at home, let's just be honest, the Bible uses the term, it's a hypocrite. It's amazing how many people claim to be a follower of Christ, but yet their words are not wholesome and their actions are not godly. God says that's not the way it's supposed to be. In work, in life, in private, in everything, your words are wholesome, your actions are godly. Too often as Christians... 
We leave the wholesome words and the godly actions at church. Because when you get out into the world, you've got to act like the world. No, you don't. We're called to a different standard. We're going to produce fruit no matter what it is. The Bible says in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, by their fruits you will know them. Now, what fruit are you producing in your life, in your marriage? The godly fruit, according to Galatians chapter 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Now, think about that. Wives, ask your husbands. Husbands, ask your wives. Ask your kids. Ask your coworkers. Ask somebody that you trust spiritually. Is my life a picture of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? That's the fruit we're supposed to produce. What's the opposite of that fruit? Well, look at verse 4. He is proud, knowing nothing, obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Here's the opposite. You're either producing the fruit of Christ... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Or you're producing the fruit of the world. Envy. Proud. Look at that. Proud, but knows nothing. Do you know somebody like that? They have all the answers, but they don't know anything. They, they, they think they know everything, but they don't know anything. You know how difficult it is to work with me around somebody like that? Obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. I know people that claim to be Christians, but they just like to fight. If you say black, they say white. If you say up, they say down. I don't understand that. They just like to fight and argue over words. They're just never happy. They're never content. So therefore, their marriage, their co-workers, their lives, everything is filled with envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, always thinking about what someone's thinking about them. Oh, I bet they said this about me. I bet they're thinking about this. Always those evil suspicions of what's going on. Useless wranglings of men and corrupt minds, it says in verse 5. Now, if you have King James, it has an interesting word there in verse 4. Mine talks about how it's being obsessed with disputes. King James uses a word called doting, which literally means sickness. What that's saying is they infect their marriage, they infect their workplace, they infect their church with sickness. Their attitude brings down the family, brings down their co-workers, brings down the church. You know anybody like that? It's just difficult to be around them. You see them coming in, and to be quite honest, you don't even want to talk to them. Because as you start to talk to them, you know this is going to lead to some argument. No matter what you say, your words are going to be picked apart, and you can't even have a conversation with them. Or when, no matter what you do, they're just going to be ticked. They got some strife and some envy and some anger, and they infect the marriage with sickness. Maybe you're married to somebody like that. Maybe your kids are like that. Maybe you have coworkers or your boss. Maybe you're like that. Stop and just simply ask yourself. The questions we're asking, are your words wholesome? Are your actions godly? Now, simple question. What fruit are you producing? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? Or envy, arguments, disputes, strife, evil suspicions? You've got to ask yourself, what is my attitude? What is my actions? You're producing fruit. Which one is it? Are you infecting people with a sickness? Are you producing the fruit of Christ? The Bible says in uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 10, if you know people like that, the best thing you're supposed to do is after you warn them the first and second time, the Bible says you're actually supposed to reject them. That's a tough teaching, isn't it? That idea of actually saying, reject them. And when you really stop and you think about that, once again, Titus 3.10 says, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. We've had to do that before as a church. It's not fun. It's not fun when you have to reject somebody and say, You're just bringing sickness into the church. You're being divisive, argumentative. You warn them. You love them. 
but they don't listen. They have to reject it. Or as it says here at the end of verse uh, 5 in 1 Timothy 6, withdraw yourself. Now, sometimes you can't withdraw yourself. Sometimes you're still working with them. Sometimes they're still your boss. Sometimes they're still your spouse. What do you do? Turn, if you will, to James chapter 3. The Bible does say what you're supposed to do. We talked about how as Christians, a lot of times we're supposed to take it. There does come a time and a place where you've got to put your foot down. Well, how do you put your foot down? James chapter 3 tells us how we're supposed to put our foot down. James 3. Go ahead and start here in uh, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. How, how do you show me that your attitude and actions are right with Christ? It says right there, by his works. See, the problem is we go into work and we talk about God. But our words get muted by our actions and our attitudes. So fine, you wear the Christian church, you read your Bible, you tell people about Jesus, you tell you're going to pray. If your attitude is the same as theirs, if your actions are the same as theirs, people are going to look more at your attitude and actions than your words. Parents, you tell your kids how important it is to be a Christian and to show godly love and be pure and all this stuff, but yet you're yelling and screaming and cussing and acting like the world? What are they going to see? They're going to see your attitude and actions. They're not going to see your words. It's easy to talk it. It's tough to live it. And so what it says here in verse 13, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. God says, show it to me. But verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Here's the problem. I see a lot of people that claim to be Christians, but they live verse 14. They have bitterness. Envy, self-seeking. And the Bible says in verse 15, that's a demonic, earthly attitude. Once again, ask yourself, what is my attitude? Am I bitter, angry, ticked? That's not of Christ. Christ's attitude is love and joy and peace. Well, what about the next one? Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. See, here's the thing. God says, when you allow that envy and self-seeking and confusion and every evil thing to be there, God says, it's just confusion. How many of us have seen a marriage where that describes the marriage? Envy and self-seeking and confusion and bitter, or workplaces or whatever. See, so often when those type of events happen, we just want to be done and quit. God says don't quit. Over the years, people have come up to me and told me about their workplace and told me how tough it is. I'm the only Christian there in the middle of it. It is so difficult, so tough. And so they come up and they say something effective. Will you please pray that I can find a different job? And I usually tell them, I will pray but do you also think that God may have put you there for a reason? Now, they don't like hearing that. So generally, people don't come up and ask me to pray for a new job anymore. Because sometimes they say, the Lord may have put you there for a reason. You said you're the only Christian there. Yeah, I'm the only Christian there. It's so difficult. Well, good. There's a Christian there. Your light and witness is strong in a dark world. See, so often we want to leave where God says, well, maybe you're supposed to stay because God has called you to be that light and a witness in a dark world. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't move you out of a job. I don't want someone to sit here and say, well, I thought God was moving me, but obviously he's not. If the Lord's leading you, the Lord's leading you. But sometimes the Lord allows you to stay to say, you're right, this is a dark, dark place with a harsh boss and harsh co-workers and he goes and you're a christian light in the middle of it now it's tough being the only light but that's sometimes how we shine the strongest when we're the only light that you see it's amazing how much of a wisdom it should be how much of a witness and light and relationship it is so what happens though when you do need to finally step in and say something you do finally need to speak to those co-workers and say hey we can't let this continue you got to speak to your boss you got to speak to your spouse the kids the friends and family so what do you do you go down to their level, they yell, you yell louder, they cuss, you cuss better, they do this, you do that. No. The answer is found in verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, 
than peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. No matter what position or state you're in, you're supposed to be living, verse 17. Your words and actions should be pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. You and I can disagree. In fact, we can disagree to the point that we may even argue over it, but we never allow our argument to go to the flesh, to say things we shouldn't say and have actions we shouldn't do. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, etc. So when you finally speak to those coworkers and your boss, you don't go down to their level. You're above that. If your spouse wants to fight, you don't go down to their level. If your kids want to argue about it, you don't go down to their level. You are the one that's above it. Your attitudes and actions are different, so therefore your wisdom, your words, are peaceable and pure and gentle and willing to yield. That is not weakness. That is strength. Because you realize that you have a better calling and you are responsible for your words and actions. It goes back to what we said earlier. Wholesome words and godly actions. We don't resort to what the world does and how the world acts. We don't do that. We're held to a different standard. And we have to watch how we respond and how we act. Jump back, if you will, to 1 Timothy 6. Because the question comes up, doesn't it? Why do people act that way? Haven't you wanted to go up to some people you work with and just say, why are you so angry all the time? Haven't you sometimes want to go up to your spouse, to your kids, and say, what is wrong? You're just walking around ticked. What's the problem? Well, I think the problem is found in verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and a certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. They're not content. They're not content in life. They're not content in their marriage. They're not content with their parents. They're not content with their kids. They're not content with their job. They're not content with their house. They're just not content. Now, we usually like to use the word happy. I'm not a big fan of the word happy. God has never promised us happiness. He's promised us joy. And I've, I've quoted this pastor numerous times. I heard a teaching one time where the pastor was asked, are you happy with your marriage? And he goes, no. He goes, I have moments of happiness in my marriage, but I have moments of unhappiness in my marriage. He goes, I have moments of happiness in my job. I have moments of unhappiness in my job. And I have moments of happiness in life. I have moments of unhappiness in life. He goes, but I have a joyful marriage, a joyful job, and a joyful life. God has promised you joy, not happiness. Happiness is based on external circumstances. There are certain times in life where good things happen and you're happy. There's times in life where bad things happen and you are not happy. But there's a constant joy in the Lord. Constant joy. And that constant joy comes from contentment with godliness. A lot of the times I see people constantly ticked and upset is because they're not content. I hear this all the time. I deserve, fill in the blank, I deserve to finally be happy. I deserve better than this. I deserve more from this. I have put up with this for how many years? It's time to finally focus on me. That's not a Christ-like attitude. That's discontentment. That's exactly what it is. All these I deserves. Who said you deserve that at all? Christ said, godliness with contentment is a great gain. And those people you live with and work with that aren't content, let's just be honest, they're probably either A, not saved, or B, don't have a strong walk in relationship with the Lord. And so therefore, you're trying to make them happy. I can't make a non-believer happy. The best I can do is point them to Christ who brings joy. If a, if a believer comes into my office and they're not happy, I can't do anything about that. I only can point them back to Christ who is their joy. Now, you either believe verse 6 or you don't. Do you believe that contentment with godliness is where you're supposed to be? And what does contentment mean? Look at verse 7. We brought nothing, we've brought nothing into this world, and as certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and clothing with these we shall be content. Job went one step further. He said in the book of Job, he goes, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He goes, that's all that matters. It's amazing how many times in life we get 
upset because we don't get what we want. There's a huge difference between needs and want. Think about needs. You need a place to live. You need clothing on your back. You need food. Those are your needs. How many times in life do we get worked up because we didn't get what we want, and so then we sit and we pout and we're not happy in life? This is not the job I want. This is not the life I want. This is not the house I want. This is not the car I want. Well, those are wants. God says, I will meet your needs. The Bible promises he meets your needs. But yet our wants sometimes overshoot our needs, don't they? Now, don't we truly believe verse 8? I think everybody here would say, oh yeah, that's all that matters. Food and clothing in the Lord, that's all I need. Then why do we get worked up about stuff? Why do we throw the little pity parties and the little pouts? Because we don't get what we want. We have a selfish attitude. We all do. Let's just be honest. God says, I'm trying to break you of that. Be content with me, Christ. We sing those songs about how God is our all in all. It's all we need. Your marriage doesn't need X, Y, and Z. Your marriage needs Christ. Your kids don't need all this stuff. They need Christ. That's what it comes down to is we need Christ. And we need to keep that focus on what will truly make us content in life. Remember, no one can promise you happiness. We only can promise you joy, and that joy comes from the Lord. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. We have to let go of the I deserve, fill in the blank. I need, fill in the blank. There's a great little rule, and I, Larry Paquette was the first one I heard it, where he says, sometimes stop and think about those things that you want. And not need, want. He goes, usually wait a month. Now after a month, he goes, re-look at it. Do you really need it? Or is it still just a want? It's amazing how many things in life we think we can't get by without. Yet we've done really fine without them, isn't it? And it's amazing how all those wants lead to problems. Look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Think of verse 9. Have you ever had a foolish and harmful lust? Have you ever bought something where basically you look later and it's like, oh, goodness, I'm literally going to be paying for that for the next whatever. It was a harmful and foolish lust. You got yourself into a problem because of those harmful and foolish lusts. I see people that have to work ungodly hours because they have to pay for this and this and this and this. Cut out some of those wants, get back down to the needs, and it's amazing how you take that financial burden off your shoulders. How many times have we got sucked into foolish and harmful lust, and we feel, verse 9, drowned. We feel drowned in finances because we should have, could have made better decisions. And what happens is, verse 10, our greediness pierces themselves with many sorrows. Now, sometimes life happens and it's beyond your control. We understand that. But to be quite honest, a lot of times we just make bad decisions with finances. And it spends years to make up for that. You know, you max out the credit cards. You finally get it all taken care of. Well, next thing you know, you max them out all again. That's all harmful and dangerous lust and destruction. It's amazing when you really simplify your life to needs, not wants. It really frees you. It really frees you from all this other type of stuff that the world throws at you. The world constantly is showing you how much you really, quote-unquote, need. You don't need it. God says godliness with contentment is a great gain. So, is it wrong to have money? Well, jump ahead to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, they may hold, lay hold on eternal life. Let's say you're in a good spot financially. Good for you. The Bible says, God says, hey, you've been blessed, and financially things are okay, things are being taken care of. He goes, that means you have more opportunity to help other people out. 
So you've been blessed? Well, verse 18, let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Because God says, by the more you give, verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. God says, you've been blessed in that area? Well, then fine, go bless other people. It's not for yours to hoard and to keep. Go bless other people with it. What a blessing that is. But I just encourage you, how much of our life and how much of our anger and frustration and bitterness is based off of verse 6. We're not content. So I'm just not happy in life. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I'm just not happy. How's your walk with Christ? I don't know. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> well, right there may be an issue. So does that mean just because your walk with Christ is strong that all of a sudden it's just going to be wonderful? Life's still difficult. There's still sorrow. We were just talking about that Wednesday. Sorrow. Did you catch that in verse 10? They pierce themselves through with many sorrows. See, Christianity has sorrow. We spent all Wednesday talking about that. There's going to be sorrow in your life. Some of you may be in a sorrowful position right now. The only difference between the world and Christianity is we both are going to suffer sorrow, but in Christianity we have Christ that gets us through it. We turn to him for that strength. But we have to stop and say, verse 6, Lord, can I just be content with you? Just you, Lord, godliness with contentment. Ask yourself these questions now. Ask yourself these questions. Are my words wholesome? Are my actions godly? What would my kids say about that? What would my parents say? What would my spouse say? What would my coworkers say? Are my words wholesome or my actions godly? What fruit am I producing? The Bible says, by your fruits we will know you. Are my fruits the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control? Or are my fruits bitterness, anger, envy, wrath? Which one is it? Do I have a tendency to go down to other people's levels and arguments? You want to yell, I'll yell. You want to cuss, I'll cuss. Or do I do what it says in James 3? I'll be pure. I'll be peaceable. I'll be gentle because that's the attitude of Christ. Verse 6, am I content? Am I content in trusting that God will provide my needs? Or do I live in this world of wants? I'll only be happy if I have this. I'll only be happy if I get that. You're never going to be truly happy. Do I have my focus being on riches? Do I work just to get? Is that my life and mindset? I've, I've seen people work so much that they lose their family, they lose their friends, and they lose their faith because they take everything that's possible they can at work where sometimes we have to step back and say, okay, God, just meet my needs because I want to make sure there's still time for friends and family and faith. Some of you have to work Sundays. That pops up. We live in a world where people work Sundays. We completely understand. But at the same time, too, you don't want to allow the work to become so much that your faith goes out the window because there's no time to serve or get involved or there's no time for friends or family. Work can become a God to itself. It's amazing how sometimes we equate work ethic, or sometimes work ethic is really just a nice word to say for greedy. Because I'm going to get and get and get. I'm going to work all this and get all this, but yet you lose everything in the process of it. God says, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a refrigerator verse. It's amazing how too often we can let something become such a passion that it overrules us, and we need to stop and say, Lord, it's you. It's all you. Ask yourself, if you're not content in life right now, why is that? Maybe spiritually things aren't where they're supposed to be. Maybe you need to get back to the basics of just Christ and the joy that he brings. Get your eyes off the situation and on the Savior. I say that all the time. If your eyes are on the situation and the circumstances of life, you will be depressed, you will be discouraged. If your eyes are on the Savior, he will get you through whatever storm you're facing. It still doesn't mean there won't be sorrow. It still doesn't mean there won't be difficulties. But he will get you through the storms of life. The worship team wants to come forward here for the final song. Just a couple quick reminders for you. Don't forget this coming Wednesday, Dr. Baker's coming out. I hope you can make it for that. I tell you, parents, if you've got school-age kids, have them come out. Great guy. He's been here a couple years ago to teach on creationism and the Bible and science. Uh, if you maybe have friends and family members have questions about that, come on out. 
Dr. Baker will do a wonderful, wonderful job with that, and I highly encourage you to get involved with that. And don't forget uh, VBS coming up. We covet more than anything your prayers. Take one of those prayer calendars if you haven't already. Pray every day for VBS. If you have the time or resources that you get involved with, we'd love to have you get involved with that as well, too. So take a look at everything, see where you can get involved.